Welcome to Shed Sessions. This is the podcast recorded in the great sheds of the world, exploring food, art and the environment. The podcast is brought to you by Omved Gardens, a food space and garden in North London, and I'm your host, Tom Broadhead. We are once again recording in my shed in Peckham for this episode, and this is the final episode in our rewilding series. Once again, I'm joined by Anna Suter, co-curator of the Rewind Rewild exhibition that took place at Omved Gardens a little bit earlier in the summer. And today we're going to listen back to uh, one of the talks from the Rewilding Forum. And this was a talk given by Susan Baker. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for having me again. And would you like to introduce Susan and how you came to invite her to be a part of this forum? Sure. So, um, so Professor Susan Baker uh, is she's the Professor of Environmental Policy um, in the School of Social Sciences uh, at Cardiff University and the co-director of the Sustainable Places Research Institute. Um, she also has amazingly a royal appointment as professor of environmental science to the king of sweden she's the first woman to ever hold this position um and she's a fellow of the royal uh, swedish academy of agriculture and forestry and a fellow of the royal society of arts so fairly accomplished i think we can say. yes yeah. we can safely say that um so her, her research mostly focuses on the government of uh complex social and ecological processes um, in the sphere of promoting a sustainable future. Um, and in particular, we were really interested in her research on um, environmental conservation practices, particularly uh, in how they relate to ecofeminism. Um, and we we felt it was really important to bring an ecofeminist viewpoint into the mix because we felt like it was a really exciting way of thinking about rewilding and thinking about the environment in general actually um, and fitted in with our whole um, sort of impetus to offer alternative ways of thinking about the natural world Um, but actually in Susan's paper uh, which we're very honoured that she wrote specially for our forum um, she really delves into the whole concept of rewilding and asks whether it's even possible and uh, what the impulse to rewild says about um, our society. And this is what we're about to hear, an, an excerpt of her paper yeah, for, exactly. on, on ecofeminism and its role in rewilding. Um, admittedly, to me, ecofeminism was a fairly new term and had to sort of wrap my head around exactly what it entailed. But I think she, she really does a wonderful job at the beginning of going through that. So over to Susan. So what I want to do is do something a little different. I want to talk about ecofeminism and rewilding. Um, what I want to do before I get into the ecofeminism is just to dismantle some of the myths that we have about rewilding so that we can better understand what's at stake here. And I want to start by making a distinction between two types of rewilding. Spontaneous rewilding, and sometimes that's called passive rewilding. And that's done by natural processes. And for example, uh, we often talk about abandoned farmland in France as a good example of uh, passive rewilding, but also the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant um, is often something that comes to our minds as well when we think about passive rewilding. They arise in France, for example, in abandoned farmyards, because when agricultural land management ceases, 
nature recolonizes these abandoned spaces or sites, but it does it under new biotic conditions with new assemblages of species. So these are wild places, but they're much more accurately described as novel ecosystems. They don't return to their old state. They become novel. They have no historic referent. They're novel because they consist of new species combinations and relative abundance that have not previously occurred within a given biome. And they're characterized by human agency. They're the result of deliberate and sometimes inadvertent human activity. But they do not depend on continued human intervention for their maintenance. They persist over time, independent of humans. And these spontaneously rewilded novel ecosystems, and it's good to use that word here when we're talking about them, are important because they're proving to be important niches for biodiversity. And there are calls for us to make more of these spaces, these novel ecosystems, in anticipation of further climate change. Or to even begin to start these novel ecosystems by having assisted migration or the deliberate movement of species in anticipation of shifting climatic envelopes. Then there's the second type of rewilding, and that's active rewilding. And here it's useful to begin, to, for me, by noting the use of the prefix re, which indicates that what is intended or understood is a return, a move back to the original place, again, anew, once more. It's active, and it involves a return. Active rewilding is a type of ecological restoration, and I work quite a lot on ecological restoration. And it's understood as a process of assisting the re recovery, recovery of an ecosystem that's been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. It involves very high levels of intervention in a landscape, or regarding species, as opposed to what we might do if we were doing passive rewilding. It can be very, very costly. It can be very, very experimental. And it can also be the source of considerable profit and business. So I just wanted to, yet again, to put up the case. So these are just images that we think about when we think about rewilding. You know, lovely return to a natural state. And I'm saying, hold on a minute. There often isn't much that's natural about any of these. But I also want to put up some other images, and this is the image of the Alstvasserplassen rewilding experiment in the Netherlands, a scheme to rewild marshlands or polders east of Amsterdam. And this rewilding experiment, far, far from being natural in any sense of the term, involved very heavy genetic re-engineering and backbreeding of heck cattle and other large herbivores, and then encouraging them to de-domesticate themselves and rewild the landscape. And far from being romantic, the experiment led to much public anger as the starving animals were visible from the fences in which they were kept. Um, a Frankensteinian nightmare for us all to look at. Um, and locals began to start throwing food over the fences. And eventually, the local authorities, the um, municipalities, were forced to slaughter 
um, almost half of the red deer, the conic um, horses and the heck cattle on the site before they actually died of starvation in front of the viewing public. So rewilding is messy. Wild places are places of life and death, of growth and decay, of scavenging, of predation, of prey. They're not just pretty places. They are places that display the gore and the guts of nature, um, but also her beauty. Rewilding can also involve other things, like, for example, um, not just putting animals or plants into a particular place, but removing what we call invasive alien species, plants that we don't think are natural to the place. I love the militaristic language here, right? Invasive alien species. And that can involve huge efforts to remove these. And we think, for example, we had discussion this morning of the Caledonian forest and efforts to remove the rhododendrons growing in the Caledonian forest are enormous, um, very time consuming. Um, and the Trees for Life project, for example, spends an awful lot of its time roadie bashing. Now, however, the aspiration that rewilding places will become over time places where human intervention ceases is also in the pot in people's, people's minds. But I'm not convinced that this is actually practical, that we can leave these places to natural processes. Given the dominance of humans on the landscape, occupying so much space, that it's very unlikely that rewilded places will not butt up against human reaction, as we saw, for example, in the case of the Netherlands. So human agency plays a key role in the initiation and at times also the subsequent management of these rewilded places, forcing us to ask the question, how wild are they in the first place? Um, that actively managed places um, is what a wild place is, and that seems quite paradoxical. So I'm going to start by saying that rewilding is a misguided attempt to restore bygone ecosystems, because there's nothing wild about them. Efforts to return to the past require continuous high levels of intervention, from genetic re-engineering to ongoing management because what's produced is a novel ecosystem. There's no return to some past state. That's not possible. And on top of that, it's not possible because more generally speaking, we're living in a state where we have changed the ecosystem's processes itself. We have moved into a system where we have changed the carbon and nitrogen cycles. We have moved into the Anthropocene. <coughs> so that the restoration of wetlands or forests or the introduction of lost species, the return of ecosystems and functions and structures is not a return to the wild. In the context of the Anthropocene, rewilding can impose an impossible ideal on the land or <coughs> on nature, right? Um, and so then we have to ask ourselves, what are we up to? in the context of the Anthropocene when we think that rewilding is a good idea. Is it nothing more than another example of hubris, where the appeal is an attempt yet again to control and dominate nature? Another experiment with species, prioritizing 
our needs over theirs. This is another example of maintaining control over plants and animals, but with this new, wonderful, seductively sounding term. Let us all rewild. So, there's a really nice start to a lecture on rewilding. It's not a good idea. It can't happen ethically or scientifically. So I got to this point in preparing this talk, and I found the talk really hard to prepare, really, really difficult. And I thought, is that it then? If it was only so easy, right? Why is it then that rewilding is grapping the public imagination? What is so attractive about this idea? Is there something else going on here? Is it the case that somehow or other the aspiration to rewild might itself be positive? And that got me thinking about a different question, and that is, in this epoch of the Anthropocene, is it now no longer possible to express a vision of the future where humans make room for a wilder, more dynamic, self-regulating world? I thought, well, I don't know. Um, and I thought, okay, what would an eco-feminist think about this? And you might say, well, that's really arbitrary. <laughs> to suddenly pull down ecofeminism and say, what would they think about it? And I really have to blame B for this, because we got talking on the phone and all of a sudden I found myself committed to giving a talk on the relationship between ecofeminism and rewilding, and I had never in my life put the two ideas together. Even though I am influenced by ecofeminism and have worked on ecological restoration, I put the phone down and I thought, what have I committed myself to? So here we go, an attempt to think, well, what would an ecofeminist think about this? Now, the first thing is, and uh, Jonathan just said it to me a few minutes ago, you're going to spend the rest of the lecture telling us about all the different types of ecofeminism that are out there. I'm not. This is not the place to present a topology of this huge body of feminist theory. I'm not going there. Right? I'm just going to say that I want to point to the basic starting point of ecofeminism, and that is the belief that the current environmental crisis is the logical outcome of the manner in which we understand and thus relate to each other and to the natural world. So drawing down from feminist theories of patriarchy, as well as insights from the peace movement and the environmental movement, ecofeminists say that there is a common belief system rooted in the principles of domination that underlie modern attitudes towards women and towards nature. Women and nature are seen as sharing a commonality. Both are exploited, used, treated as a means, but never as an end. They are uncovered, naked, stripped, made vulnerable, and made dependent. This principle of domination rests on a dualistic view of the world. And this dualism comes with the added value attribution. We have man, nature, women, superior, inferior, and therefore the superior should dominate. Bad enough that you have dualism, but when you start attributing value to one side of the equation, and not the other, this is the superior side, 
then that's where the problems arise. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and tease that out and see what would that tell us about rewilding. So by rejecting this notion that we have man, nature, superior, inferior, and the superior gets on to do the domination, Ecofeminists try to reconstruct a new understanding of the place of human beings within the natural world, and in particular to situate women and nature and men in a more balanced relationship with each other. So Ecofeminists start with the rejection of the traditional Western approach that sees women and nature as other, alien, outside the self, as estranged. The past, the present, and the future, all human life, they argue, is ultimately intertwined with nature. And ecofeminists go on to say that actually women are closer to nature in the sense that the links between human beings and nature are not too deeply buried for them. Nature is a sister whose language women are intimately acquainted. This is not least because women can give birth and they're traditionally assigned with inferior tasks like being a mother or a nurse or guardian of the home or of the community. Whereas male values have sought to exploit, use and make our links with the non-human world invisible, seeking to dominate and extract what is of use value from the natural world and from women. So ecofeminists want to celebrate the embeddedness of all life forms, including people, in the multiple webs and cycles of life. And the use of the imagery of the web is very common. So this is the ontology that ecofeminists criticize, this lovely notion of um, the hierarchy um, of, of the animal kingdom. Remember that word? Right? And here we have man, slaves, and, and we're not talking about a man as such, we're talking about male values, there's a difference. And then we have plants and animals, and up here we have God. And this ontology is deeply embedded in our culture. And ecofeminists say, oh, but uh, that's not how we want to see things. We'd actually like to move from ecological to ecological, and this is a very famous uh, image that you can download off the web uh, fairly easily. So this is what ecofeminists want to bring to the table. And they start by bringing that to the table by throwing out this binary, this dualism that underpins uh, Western thought. So here the positing of a binary differences imposes value hierarchies where one side is assigned a higher value than the other. The male, the rational, the non-emotional, and the mechanistic are seen as superior expressions of civilization and advancement. And in Western thought, that dualism has actually become a public logic where the value hierarchies that are embedded within this philosophy have for centuries been unquestioned and indeed almost unquestionable. At least you get burned at the stakes. So if we reject re, um, dualism, then our view of re rewilding will begin to begin with no longer seeing humans as separate from or above or beyond nature and the natural world. 
This means that we can no longer have rigid dichotomies between the degraded and the restored, between the wild and the tame, between nature and society. And we'll see this morning in several of the conversations that we've had that this notion that the wild is that, that societies has already broken down. There are all the in-between places that were mentioned this morning. So what a rejection of dualism does is that it opens up us to embrace the continuity between similarity and difference, seeing the web that's woven between the wild and the tame, between nature and society. This means that ecofeminists would reject rewilding if it was based on a false assumption that nature is something that is apart from us over there, out there, in the wild places, and to which we have to return. So would an ecofeminist then throw rewilding out and say, well, hopeless project? No, I don't think so. I think that ecofeminist theory allows us to see rewilding in a clearer manner more specifically to see our role and our engagement in rewilding differently. In this view, our role and indeed our control are understood as limited. In engaging in active rewilding, our role is to set up the parameters that allow the land to actively participate in outcomes. We are not in control here. And more importantly, we recognize that we are not in control here. Indeed, that nature may evolve new and very novel ecosystems. These may or may not conform to our views or our visions about what it is we want here, or our expectations about what a rewilded landscape should look like. We really don't want it to look like. We want it to look like that. We really don't want it to look like that. But we have to get used to it. Oops. Sorry, Bea, I keep coming back to your stone. Um, so what ecofeminism for me does is it brings a humility to the task and to our view of ourselves and our role within rewilding. This also means that we have to stop seeing rewilding as a goal. A goal that we set in, that has a predetermined outcome that we set about achieving. So rewilding becomes instead a process. We set the conditions that open the scope for the possibility for the land. It's a process and understanding it that way allows us to see it as part of the wider evolutionary ecosystem process that is going on all around us. So in this view, nature is allowed to make herself. If we falsely see rewilding as an active intervention over which we have or should seek to have control, this permits us to take actions which we determine are best for the land and the species. In other words, it's based on a view that human knowledge and expertise, and here we see a dominance of Western natural sciences, provide the most substantive important guidance for restoration processes. In, in this view, the land is a passive object to which we, active human subjects, restore life. 
this um, dualism also resonates if we stop thinking about it this way. Because in this view, humans are the agent. Nature is the subject. We are the active. Nature is the passive. It's the product of what it is that we do. It's not hard to see the link then between that and the notion of domination or dominion over the natural world. So if we don't see rewilding anymore as a goal, as an outcome, but a process, this means that rewilding is not reached in a predetermined length of time. We have to move then to some form of temporal openness about what it is we are doing here. A new form of pluralism about making the wild and opening up to that temporal plurality. That means we have to have other things on our plate. The first thing is we need an ethics of tolerance. Tolerance of project conception and of project outcome. So instead of yanking up the unacceptable invasive alien plant, we have to ask ourselves whether we should rightfully and successfully seek to dominate the land. And we have to ask ourselves about what conceptualization have we got here about what is acceptable from rewilding projects. That means we have to accept uncertainty. We have to embrace it. And uncertainty is a condition that our rational worldview especially as expressed in planning and natural sciences and indeed in public policy making, has always seen uncertainty as a problem, so much so that you have to assume it away. Did anybody here ever study economics? Yeah. Right. Economics 101, let us assume no uncertainty. Let us assume perfect knowledge. And then we build all our economic theory on that basic assumption. So. The unknown, the undetermined, the unsettled, the unresolved, the unsure, pending nature is one that threatens this worldview. We want instead order, rational control. Indeed, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Indeed, we have a long tradition of seeing the construction of society and the success of society as the successful outcome of being in control, right? But we live in a complex, adaptive, dynamic system. It's a coupled socio-ecological system. And it is one where if we start to embrace uncertainty, we will better understand the context in which we live. It also means that we have to start thinking differently about this historical ideal, this return to the past. And I guess a question you also often get asked about rewilding is, what wild do you want to return to? Are you talking about um, what historical baseline? Before humans? Before colonization of white Europeans? Before the Industrial Revolution? That's known as the historic baseline problem. Now, if we think differently about rewilding, we have to think about the Anthropocene as well and think we cannot and will not return to any of these pasts because nature is dynamic 
and we are entering a system that is under profound change. It's paradoxical because the Anthropocene is a human-induced epoch, but it is not to say that it is one that is under our control. The Anthropocene itself is wild and untamed. So, adopting a non-dualistic pluralism would allow us to see places not as binaries but as complex multi-dimensional interrelationships so that we simply don't impose our binaries upon them. So we stop pulling up the invasive alien species and we ask a different question. Is this an opportunistic species that is managing to survive in the context of climate change? So we have no predetermined native, non-native, acceptable, non-acceptable here. We have to have a situational ethics which takes into account the particular context of an act when evaluating it ethically, rather than judging it according to some absolute moral standards. Because what ecofeminism is about is a rejection of the grand narrative of the universal white male value ethics. So I asked myself, okay, we'll throw out the grand narrative. So how are we going to make, or what are we going to use as a fair basis for judgment or action? We could find that rewilding produces brutal inequalities. And we actually might prefer to live in a charming Anthropocene. So, ecofeminists remind us that values and actions are inseparable. If we reject the values of domination and the ontology of dualism, we have to instead coexist with nature peacefully and in harmony. And the, these become our values. So, I'm going to move off that just for the last few minutes. I don't know how long or more I've got, but I could talk forever. Um, and I want to talk just about something else that we can learn from ecofeminist theory. And that is about another dimension of rewilding. The aspiration that the wild will also help to recover the self. Now, back to ecofeminism, and they reject the mind-body distinction that is so prevalent in Western thought, and which Descartes so famously said, I think, therefore I am. This sharp dichotomy is supports and is supported by a belief that women represent the bodily dimensions of existence, whereas men represent the higher realms of thought and of culture. The attribution of value here is critical. In this view, the body is aligned with the inferior and the messy and the ill-informed and nature, whereas the mind is linked to the superior realm of rational thought, the higher order of scientific endeavor. So in rejecting the mind-body distinction, ecofeminists want to bring back biology, to recognize and accept that we are biological beings and we share this in common with other non-human animals. We are part of the natural world. But I tread on very, very dangerous grounds by putting that back on the table. 
because the idea that we are biological beings upsets a lot of feminists, and I'll come to that in a second. Necrofeminists would throw Descartes out and say, it's not that I think, therefore I am, but I bleed, therefore I am. And it is the connection between women and nature that's really, really contentious in feminist thought. Because the central argument of very um, early second wave feminism is that the difference between the sexes are not rooted in biology. They are the product merely of social forces. And many second wave feminists are distraught with the idea of bringing biology back into the conversation. Simone de Beauvoir, the mother of second wave feminists, said, one is not born but becomes a woman. No biological, psychological or economic fate determines the figure that the human female presents in society. And I say, no, Simone de Beauvoir was wrong. And so was Firestone when she said, the extent to which we become free as women is the extent to which we overcome and liberate ourselves from reproduction. So it's difficult. But I would say that ecofeminists are right to make a distinction between reproduction as a tool of oppression, and we cannot deny that, and reproduction itself as oppressive. They acknowledge that women's biological capacity has been used as a tool, but that it is not in itself oppressive. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It is liberating. It is liberating precisely because it allows women to go beyond the anatomizing individualism of current society that serves to alienate women from herself, each other, and from nature. So, in acknowledging the biological and embodied nature of existence allows us to reaffirm our relationship with the living world and to understand that identification. It is the embodied self that experiences nature. Our bodies encompass and experience the wild. And so the emphasis then becomes on the sensual being in being embodied in the natural world. So we can embrace the rhythms and cycles of nature, of blood, of birth, of death, and of life. It then rewilding can become a gesture of ritual healing. It can allow us the aspiration to re-nature the self, to return the wild through our bodily forms. For example, ecofeminists like Starhawk would put a lot of emphasis on that. But we need to be really, really careful about what we're doing here because we can hanker after the wild, but in so doing, we can reaffirm our dualistic notion of nature and society. The project becomes one of removal of the self from the stresses of everyday life, and now the anxiety of climate change, where we seek to go back to a purer place, a place of pure authenticity, where we can find ourselves and find a way forward. But we have to be care careful. Humans are not apart from nature. We have always and ever lived in nature. We are natural beings. And what 
ecofeminist through the focus on the biological allows us to do is to recover those connections and to reaffirm them. So we can celebrate being in nature. It can allow us, when we are in nature, to observe critical components of the self, of transience, of vulnerability. Note the word vulnerability, not domination. As wild places are much more immediate and much more imminent than human-made environments, birth and death, creation and decay are ever-present in the woods, in the river, in the fields. Messy, wild places can connect us to this, but not in the romantic and simple way of rewilding, as the first slide would suggest, but the sense of facilitating an investigation of impermanence. Contact with the natural world enables us to encounter our existential nature and the nature of others and to better understand and experience origination, impermanence, creation, destruction, interdependence and interconnection. So, I'll just pull it together. Um, rewilding holds very dangerous tendencies. It can be romantic residual in reaction to the alienation of modern life. It can serve to underpin dualistic notions of nature and society. The wild is over there, nature is over there somewhere. It can be motivated by anthropocentric purposes. It may limit us in heeding nature, instead contributing to hubris, to personal or scientific advancement and aggrandizement, which I think this has a lot to do with personal aggrandizement by a particular scientist. Or to find new ways in which we can seek to shape nature in our image or in order to satisfy our needs. But at the same time, rewilding is positive. It's important, it's urgent, it's required because it offers us a vision of a future where we reimagine old dualisms with its borders and its divides embracing instead a reconnection of our place in nature where we can begin to see nature around and within us and provide a means whereby we can begin to re-engage with the non-human nature. From an ethical point of view, it can serve a very important purpose, help to delimit the space of human action in a non-human world. It can offer us an opportunity to redeem an otherwise highly managed and overhumanized place. It offers us as well a political analysis of the links between androcentrism and environmental destruction and offers us a conceptual tool to better understand our place within nature, giving us an ethic of care and to engage back again with nature in ways to support the development of human and non-human spirit, a rewilding process that is much needed. I must say I learned quite a lot through listening to that. And I actually must admit I've gone back and listened to it a couple of times because there are, there are certain sections where you want to go and sort of re-digest it. But for me, I think there were a few very interesting points that came out of it. Um, she mentions rewinding, rewilding being currently a goal and not a process but really it it needs to be a process and I guess you could also ladder that back to the feminist angle that 
really feminism is a, it's a fluid process that we we all we we benefit through understanding that it's a process rather than aspiring to this sort of maybe unachievable end goal mm. well i think um it's maybe i think there is an element of that and i think but i think there's maybe more about the fact that um feminism promotes kind of a system of thought which is process based as opposed to sort of teleological uh sort of end directed goal oriented mm. um teleological 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 yeah what does that word mean uh it means so telos is uh ancient greek for um end or destination so it means stuff which is directed towards a particular end a as opposed end. to exactly as Great. opposed to being open ended and that's a also lot of, broadened my vocabulary for the day. So good, I'm that. glad. Um, so a lot of uh, feminist thought, and particularly eco-feminist thought, uh, is looking at being open-ended in opposition to uh, sort of teleological, goal-oriented, capitalist ways of thinking, which are traditionally associated with um, ma masculine modes of, of thinking and working um, and there's definitely within that like a correlation between androcentrism, so men centrism, uh, and anthropocentrism, human centrism, um, and ecofeminism maybe opens up those discourses a lot more to non-humans. Um, and I love what she says at the end about um, you know finding that nature is all around us and even inside us. Um, and I think recognising that sort of bodily connection to to the earth is is a really exciting idea. Um, and I'm not 100% sure how you do that, but I think the goals of, or maybe not the goals, maybe goals is the wrong word, uh, the intentions. I think intentions is a useful way of thinking about, you know, we have to do stuff, we have to have a start point. Um, but having an intention as opposed to a goal, I think, can be a lot more sort of an interesting way of working and a more useful way of working if you want to work with non-humans and you want to work in an alternative framework. And we have to be willing to embrace uncertainty as a key Exactly, definitely. Um, because we never know what's going to happen. You can have a goal to do a particular thing, but it's in most cases, especially if you're working with a complex ecosystem, all sorts of exciting things are going to happen that you never even thought would happen. Mm. Um, it's so, almost like it's kind of we as humans have to get over ourselves a bit and realise that nature is has far more possibilities than we can ever begin to imagine. Right? Mm. It's that that idea that you we are constantly surprised by nature in positive ways, and we are, and the the forward looking potential for that is also limitless. Mm, yeah, definitely. Actually, it it's quite an inspiring uh, way of looking at it, really, isn't it? I think it is inspiring, yeah. And I think it maybe also is connected to um, something that we were chatting about in a previous podcast about re-enchantment. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you open up some space for nature to surprise you, if you're willing to let it surprise you, then you can probably find all sorts of really amazing things that you would ne never otherwise find because 
you think that you need to find what you're looking for. But if you stop looking for particular things and just look more generally in a sort of open-ended way, then uh, I think you can find that you do get re-enchanted by the sort of the world around you. That's a lovely summary. <laughs> I think that that should that will that brings us to a very um, nice close, and actually that wraps up this series, the rewilding series. Uh, thank you, Anna, very much for joining me for this series of six. Um, may have come across it, may have felt like a marathon at times to you. <laughs> no more sitting in stuffy sheds with me. Uh, it's been great fun. <laughs> great stuff, and thank you so much for lending all your expertise and uh, especially for bringing these great talkers to the podcast. So this wraps up this series. We will be coming back with uh, another series in the very near future, still TBC. But in the meantime, please do keep an eye out on at omvedgardens.com and at omvedgardens on Instagram. Thank you very much for joining us. See you soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or for more information, visit omvedgardens.com or follow us on Instagram at omvedgardens.